Hello, America. Welcome to Your Leo Nation. I am the Chief Mark Garrett. We are pleased to have as a guest today Sam Fattis. Sam is retired CIA uh, operations officer. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It really is our pleasure and our honor. By the way, you can find Sam at, I believe, at andmagazine.substack.com. That's A-N-D magazine.substack.com. And we'll talk about some other places where you can find Sam and some articles and books that I think that you should read. Matter of fact, Sam, this is how I found you. I am a subscriber to Imprimus. Imprimus is a publication from Hillsdale College. Absolutely essential institution, I think, in this country. Matter of fact, before we get into some of the, the bones of CIA and your article and some books, tell us about your relationship with Hillsdale and Imprimus because... I want this audience to become acquainted with them and to utilize them as a great resource as far as what we're going to talk about today and general cultural stuff. Well, look, before I gave the, the talk relatively recently, what, two months ago at, at Hillsdale, I was familiar with Hillsdale and read their stuff. I honestly had never even been there. They reached out to me to ask me to come out. I got to tell you, they blew me away when I was on the ground out there. They're just incredibly efficient, organized, substantive, on down the line, man. From the moment my wife and I arrived there, just the totally professional, serious outfit. And obviously they addressed some really important issues. I was a fan before I went. When I left, I was a much bigger fan of the institution. Well, I'm not surprised. And I think when people hear you today, they're, they're going to understand the quality of individual with whom they associate. And again, it's in Primus, Hillsdale College. You can sub subscribe to Primus for free. I love reading their articles. And again, Sam's an excellent example of why. So getting into the CIA, and by the way, the, the, the name of the article uh, in Primus is Beyond Repair, the Decline and Fall of the CIA. I'm sorry, in Primus is why the CIA no longer works and how to fix it. That's the article. The book you wrote is The Decline and Fall of the CIA. The CIA in general, I think to most people, understandably, is a mystery. It's what do they do? Where do they come from? Can you give us a little background on the CIA and, and what its initial role is or was? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Look, the short version is that the Central Intelligence Agency was basically created right after the Second World War. There was a predecessor called the Office of Strategic Services during the Second World War. The CIA, as we know, it was created in 47. And its central task was to make sure we never suffered another Pearl Harbor, if you want to boil it down to its essence, to gather strategic human intelligence so we would never suffer another surprise attack. Obviously, what happened on 9-11-2001 shows it failed catastrophically in that mission and unfortunately has failed, despite a lot of really good folks working really hard, has failed on a number of other occasions. But the, cent the, the centerpiece of the CIA, what it is a human intelligence organization, which means it's not, its job is not to be MSA and run big eavesdropping operations, although occasionally it conducts eavesdropping. It's not supposed to run spy satellites, although at various points it's been dragged into that. It's supposed to conduct the business of espionage. 
which if you think about it is, you know, they jokingly refer to it as the second oldest profession after prostitution. Mm -hmm. it, 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 at its heart, it hasn't changed a whole lot in thousands of years, right? You can add gizmos and gadgets and cool tech gear, but the bottom line is it's about people and what makes them tick and convincing people to betray various causes. And so people remain the same. The outer trappings change, but you could probably go back thousands of years to the Babylonians or the Assyrians and find ops they were running that are in essence the same as what we're doing today. That's what it's all about. And that's the core of the issue with why it doesn't work. And we're going to get into that. I think one of the, one of the elements you touched on there is that it is, it's human operations. It's hands-on. Yes. It's intimate. It's infiltration. Is that a fair assessment? hundred percent. At its core, what you're talking about is psychology, right? You're talking about, I, I'm trying to recruit some Russian intel officer, okay? Which was, I did a lot of things as an ops officer, but the core of your job is to recruit sources, right? My job is to get sources inside the enemy, whether that they are, Russian intel, Al-Qaeda, whatever. So that means I got to get close enough to them and then figure out what makes them tick, to speak in shorthand. What buttons do I have to push in this guy's head? He's a Russian intel officer. What would possibly convince him to cooperate with the United States of America? And by the way, risk execution, disgrace for his family. Even worse, if he's an Al-Qaeda guy, right? His fate, if he gets discovered, is going to be long, protracted, and horrifying. So how am I going to get this guy to come across? What, what makes him tick? And a lot of times, in the movies, this gets doiled, boiled down to we blackmail people. Almost never done doesn't produce a particularly cooperative source. I don't think I ever worked a single op where we were blackmailing somebody. Or it's all about money. It ain't that simple, right? Money. Al-Qaeda guy doesn't care about the money if you can't keep him alive. And if you, there's just a lot of other factors that go into that. It's not as simple as throwing money at somebody and buying. Right. And that, that makes sense. You want somebody that's going to cooperate from an organic point of view. Maybe with persuasion, of course, and, and certainly yeah. almost always with persuasion, but there has to be a self-motivation in there and not just external. And being in law enforcement for 30 years myself, it, I understand that not on the level that you dealt with, but certainly when we're talking about informants, things like this, there has to be some level of internal motivation. Speaking of that, I, I, you hit on some of the things that you did, you're responsible for. I want to go back a little bit about you and your background and really what brought you to the CIA. And I'm jumping around a little bit in the article here because it's so fascinating. I read it three times and made a bunch of notes on there. I may refer to those, but I want to talk about your background, what right. brought you to the CIA and what type of person, at least historically, because we're going to talk about what's going on now with recruitment, but historically, what type of person is the CIA looking for or were they looking for and again, what brought you there? How'd you end up in the CIA? Yeah, well, my story probably sounds a little goofy, but it's nonetheless true. I was in the army. I had been a combat arms officer. I was also a JAG officer, an army lawyer. That's a long tangle story. Any event, there were things that I loved about the army. There were things that drove me completely mad about the army on any given day. 
I got out, I was working for the state of Washington, had a good job working for the state attorney general, working actually as counsel for the Department of Corrections in and out of the prisons all over the state of Washington. Okay. And bored out of my friggin' mind and just feeling like, okay, this is okay to pay the bills for the time being, but uh, I, this is not what I want to do. I've got a nice house and I'm in Olympia, Washington. It's a beautiful part of the country, et cetera. I, I don't want to be making the same commute 10 years from now. I don't. And this is, I'm old enough that I'm subscribed to job newsletters. This is pre-internet folks. So I'm getting hard copy monthly newsletters from various places. One of them was, I think it's the University of Puget Sound Law School. Anyway, I've subscribed to a bunch of them. Every month they put out job listings, hard copy, comes in the mail. I read a advertisement for the clandestine service of the Central Intelligence Agency, which is the Directorate of Operations, which is the guys who do the ops. And I read that, it was like a paragraph long, and I thought, again, this sounds goofy, but I was like, that is, okay, that's what I actually want to do. I'm excited about that. That pumps me up. Then, of course, I had to go home and explain to my wife who thought we had a, a good job and a good house. And by the way, she had a very good job at the state legislature that, uh, yeah, let's just sell everything and move halfway across the country and embark on this mad adventure. I, I will say, to her credit, she not only came along, but subsequently became an ops officer herself and spent a wow. career wow. undercover. So, so we worked together undercover for 20 plus years. It sounds like it sounds like a, a Hollywood movie. Uh, it sounds like True Lies with Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis. When you think about it, you actually—this I did not know. Right, you actually worked undercover with your wife, or are you talking about the same time in different fields of operation? But we worked with her working together. Yeah, both. Both. Sometimes we would be. Most of the time we were in the same place geographically and we might actually be running ops on the street. It might be three o'clock in the morning. We're out on the street together running an op. At various other times, we might be running our own ops in the same area or at various points, we'd be geographically separate. I, I went into Iraq in advance of the invasion about nine, 10 months in advance of the invasion. I took the first team and she did not come along. She was not present in Iraq during that at various other times. She was inside other countries doing things, and I was not with her, you know, we were separate. So just depending on what was required for the job, that's all. Well, absolutely fascinating. It sounds like that's a topic in and of itself for another show. Of course, for as much as you could talk about, I'm sure there are a lot of things that are still classified, but it really is fascinating. I did not know that, and I would love to hear more about that if we can at some other time. Sure, so sure. Uh, you touched on going into Iraq before the invasion. How much can how much of what you actually did? And you touched on it, but how much can you expand on what you did for the CIA and, and your time with the organization? Yeah, well, quite a bit actually. As long as you stay clear of specific names and specific times and dates, and we don't get too down in the weeds into what they call sources and methods. But I worked all over Southern Europe, the Middle East, South Asia. I was in and out of a lot of other places, but the center of gravity in my career would be Italy and Greece, east to India. 
I worked a whole host of targets, but I worked a lot of counterterrorism. I worked a lot of weapons of mass destruction against the Iraqis, against the Iranians, Al-Qaeda, all the associated jihadi groups, Hezbollah, all the fun guys. You're, look, your job as an operations officer, an ops officer is what the average American would call a spy. So CIA, in CIA speak, a spy is the foreigner you convinced to work for us. If I recruit the guy inside Al-Qaeda to be a source for us, he's the spy. I'm the intelligence officer in their parts. And the guys who do that, the guys and gals who do that are ops officers, sometimes called case officers. So you got a lot of other guys in the organization. you got communicators, right? None of this matters if you can't maintain comms with headquarters. you got people who are analysts. Doesn't do any good for me to bring in information if it's not somebody synthesizing it, reviewing it. You got a lot of other people here, but the tip of the spear, if you will, are the office officers. They're the ones who actually conduct operations. You, so you run sources, you write intel reports, you conduct covert action. When I was, like I spent nine, 10 months in Iraq in advance of the invasion, where we were collecting intelligence, we were also capturing people, blowing things up, doing whatever is required. But the heart and soul of what you do, what you get paid to do, really is recruit sources. It's my job to get, if I'm in Iraq, my number one job is to start convincing Iraqi military officers and Iraqi intelligence officers to start talking to us, passing us intelligence, cooperating with us. That's the heart and soul of it. You know, if you can't do that as an ops officer, you're done. You, that that's again that's what the what your paycheck is for and the extent to which you advance move forward is really determined by can you do that mm -hmm. can you bring home what they would call scalps which is wow. metaphorically people we're not really scalp scalping people in the field it means this lieutenant general for the iraqis is now talking to us and t passing us classified information Yes, in today's safe space, sensitive world, world, we have to be very careful with every word yes, we say yes. and explain it away for the dum-dums who don't understand metaphors. I'm, to I'm totally with you. This is this is very interesting because, again, this is how we're tying things together in these conversations. You talk about intelligence gathering. They're human assets. And you, you touched on earlier about the recent failures of the CIA, 9-11, Another one you t talked about in your article is the Wuhan lab. Can you connect the dots for us, Sam, about why, not specifically, but generally why these failures did occur and relate them to what you talked about is, was your responsibility about human intelligence, about relationships, about gathering information. How did these things occur? What was the breakdown? And I guess I would I'd expand that. Not just specifically, but it seems like, in other words, there was a culture change with the CIA yeah. that probably led to these breakdowns and these failures. Is that fair to say? Yeah, look, I, I yes, 100%. There, there are a couple of, couple of twin problems here, I think. One is what I call bureaucratization, and the other is what I call politicization. So bureaucratization, what somebody else cleverer than I has called bureaucratic hardening of the arteries. <laughs> so if you're going to be an effective ops officer, 
you got to have a really kind of unique mix of skills, right? This is an art. It's a craft. It's not a, you can't just send somebody to a school for three months and boom, they're a spot. When you start talking about the capacity to move in other cultures, adapt, you have to move. You hear this expression, you're in a world of shades of gray or a maze of mirrors. You never have black and white understanding of where you stand, right? You're talking to a guy in a difficult environment. You're making assessments all the time. Is he with me? Is he against me? To what extent is he with me? He's talking to me. It's not, is he lying or is he telling the truth? Because he's doing both. Question is, to what extent is he doing each? And why is he doing each? What's he lying about? What's he not lying about? Who's he covering for? So you have to have that capacity to operate in a really ambiguous situation, make really good judgments very quickly. Also, look, if I'm going to sit down and talk to a guy who's been in Al-Qaeda for 20 years and convince that guy to trust us and come across the line. Ultimately, actually, at that point in time, I'm convincing him to trust me. He doesn't. U.S. government is irrelevant. He's not trusting a bureaucracy. He's trusting you. Okay, so you got to establish commonality with that guy. And this is not about sleazy used car salesman garbage because this guy's going to see through that stuff in about five seconds. You're right. telling him you're going to keep him alive. That's the ultimate assessment, because if you're lying to him or you don't know what the hell you're doing, he's a dead man. And again, he's going to die really slowly and horribly. So you've got to have, you've got to be able to actually get this guy for real in the real world to trust you. And then you've got to have your stuff together enough that he doesn't regret that decision and start thinking, okay, I trusted a moron or. So you got this whole grab bag of, of skills. And then, so you have to recruit some very unique people. You got to train them, you got to season them, but also then they have to be able to work in an environment where they are, they have the freedom to move very quickly and very creatively. I'm there. I'm the only guy in the room with this dude. I'm the only guy he's ever met. I need to make a decision. I need to hand him X number of dollars right now or commit to this right now or almost right now within days. You, if you think about how fluid this is, how unique this is, you can't run this like a standard federal bureaucracy, right? And you made reference earlier to the fact that some of these issues are not unique to some of the unique elements of them to CIA, but at their core, some of the touchstones are the same. I would imagine in law enforcement, a cop on the street who knows the terrain and knows the culture and knows where he is making assessments all the time that don't translate into some form he can pump up through the bureaucracy that be reviewed by seven different layers of middle managers none of whom actually have his ability to assess that situation, right? With an ops officer, right? I I can't be talking to Mohammed and then submit paperwork and request approval to hand him money and then wait two and a half months while 12 different committees review the request. At most, I got to be able to go back to headquarters and say, I'm meeting this guy tomorrow morning at 08, my time. And I need permission right now to put five grand in his pocket. 
because that's what it's going to take to get him to come across the line. And I got to be working for a machine that moves that quickly and that flexibly. And also the nature of the people here, it's not just you can't run the bureaucracy that way. You can't recruit to the bureaucracy in a standard bureaucratic way. So if I want an ops officer, I, I don't want the guy who has a 4.0 average, who's never gotten less than 100% on every test, who does nothing but follow every instruction given him by all of his teachers all throughout high school and college. I don't want a dummy, but I'd rather have a guy with a 3.6 average who screws off every once in a while. I'd rather have a guy who's took the summer off to go backpacking in Europe or cut class to go hang out with his girlfriend at the beach or is the guy who's a little uncomfortable coloring inside the lines all the time, right? Not so much that he won't follow any rules, not a guy who has become a criminal, but maybe a guy who knows how criminals think, right? A guy who won't. He won't go steal the crown jewels for his own benefit because he's not a criminal. But if you gave him the challenge of stealing the crown jewels, he would find that to be fun and he would actually pull it off. Like if you tell him it's impossible, he thinks of that as a challenge. He doesn't. So yes. you start reducing this to standard bureaucratic federal stuff. What's your grade point average? What languages do you currently speak? And pretty soon you got a bunch of guys who are great bureaucrats. But look, I made reference earlier to my wife. My wife grew up in a single parent household in an Oak Hole town in Pennsylvania. Her dad walked out the door at a very early age. With no advantages, public schools, lots of kids in her neighborhood making bad decisions and going down wrong paths in life left the country prior to being in the CIA one time to make a day trip to British Columbia from Washington State. Walk on down the list of standard measures. Did she speak Mandarin Chinese? Had she gone to an Ivy League school? No. She was an exceptional ops officer. She recruited jihadists inside Al-Qaeda networks and got guys that wouldn't shake her hand because she's unclean as a female to take orders from her and take money from her. Why? Because she's a tough kid, because she grew up in a little bit of a tough neighborhood, because she had to start thinking for herself and fending for herself by the time she was 12 years old, right? It's a yeah. lot of stuff there that your standard federal bureaucracy is not going to measure. Well, so, I think you... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and so you just can't, you can't run the thing like a standard federal bureaucracy. And what has happened as it has gotten bigger and the years have gone by, it is that is precisely what's happened. It's become mm -hmm. bigger, stiffer, more cumbersome. And you you laid it out beautifully because you talked about the culture. In other words, this is what it's become. It's become a reliance on check the box, grades, degrees, and right. uh, skills on paper. And again, like you said so clearly, Sam, it's not that those things are necessarily bad. Matter of fact, those things are good. That's there's no problem. But that can't be the end-all, be-all. There has to be the human quality. There has to be the, the human asset. I think just a, a short phrase is being able to think on your feet, being able yeah. to think quickly, having self-confidence without being overly cocky. These are things yeah. that are, in, these are intangibles. I put together a lot of teams in the California Highway Patrol 
as you can imagine, getting to the rank of chief over the years. And I'll, I was sitting here glued, listening to you, but that's exactly right. These attributes that are quantifiable are, are good, they're fine, but they can't be the deciding factor when you're building teams or trying to achieve a goal. You have to have people that have the ability to take risks. And we hear the term all the time, risk management. I know I heard it in the Hyatt Patrol all the time. Yeah. And right. every time I've heard that from somebody, hey, we have to look at risk management. Every time I heard that, I thought, you, sir, you, ma'am, are afraid of taking risks, not managing risk, as you say. You don't want to manage anything but your own rear end. It's CYA. And so just I was listening to this absorbing it. That's almost hypnotized. It's, it's exactly right. Like you said, the specifics can be uh, a different right. with the CIA than other organizations, but the principles are the same. It, it Again, you touched on something else about the people that the CIA, and by the way, other organizations are looking at or bring in or excited to have because they have these reasons like this. And it shows, to me, it shows the incredible reliance on these things and not looking at the other aspects of individuals and why I believe that the value of college degrees, whether they're undergrad like I have or advanced degrees, are becoming less and less significant, less and less important, in my humble opinion, because they right. don't tell you anything about the individual. Right. We've gotten away from that. So on that, you talked about with the bureaucracy, it might have been about the political side, but about the recruitment. And even in the CIA, it's succumbed to DEI and all this inclusion equity stuff. Is that still a problem in the CIA and, and other federal agencies? Well, I, I know for a fact it is in other federal agencies, but the CIA? Yeah, 100% is, it, it's a problem. And look, I don't, I'm sitting here doing this interview in my office. I got a picture of my team in Iraq over here. It was one of the guys toward the end of the deployment, actually, as the ground war was starting, said, hey, let's get a picture of it. So it's, it's whatever 40 guys were around the team house on that particular. To me, it's a picture of America, right? Because it's a bunch of white dudes and it's also black guys. And my logs officer, who was a Hispanic guy who got his kicks playing low rider riding around in northern Iraq with the windows down, blaring I it out. It. And my logs off and, and another logs officer who's a white female lesbian. And yeah, I, one of the guys is the kid of, of boat people that escaped Vietnam and the other guys in a Syrian Christian. Family fled Saddam, and here's this guy volunteers to go back into Iraq to get rid of some. We could go on down this list. To me, it's a picture of the United States, right? The only thing I really care about, I'm glad, I'm proud of my heritage. I'm glad all these guys are proud of their heritage as well. You should. The only thing I really care about is that they're really good at their jobs. That's the only thing that really matters, right? And I, as I indicated, get talking about my wife's background, we should be throwing a big net. We should sure as heck not be going to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton trying to fill the ranks in the CIA and thinking that you're going to come up with the folks you need to do that. We ought to be going out everywhere. But our deciding factor in who we recruit shouldn't have anything to do with color, ethnicities, sexual orientation. And it also plays in very weird ways that I think a lot of the folks who push this diversity and inclusion stuff, having no experience with the job, don't understand the way it actually works abroad. So for instance, I was in a Southern European country at one point running a terrorist source. 
And this terrorist source was from that country. In other words, ethnically from this Southern European country. And we would conduct meetings, which we call rolling car meetings. So a driver drives and I sit in the back seat with the source and conduct the debriefing. It, for a variety of reasons that have to do with being able to change location and change profile and not being pinned down. So anyway, one day and the drivers and the other counter surveillance that secure the meeting rotate in and out of the country. So one day we pick this individual up and the new driver happens to be ethnically from the same country, an American sit whose family immigrated to the States. 50 years prior, but he looks, one of the great benefits to him is he speaks the language. And if you put him on the street, he looks like everybody around. I start trying to talk to the source won't talk. We've been meeting for months. Source all of a sudden won't speak. I ask about three or four times as I, okay, what's up here? And the source just nods to the, at the driver and says something like, who's he? And all of a sudden it clues into me that the problem is he looks like a local. And the source is, and I said, okay, if he's here, you understand he's an American and he's with me. It doesn't matter where his people came from. And the source's response was, I know, and I still don't like it because I don't trust my own people. They talk too much. Wow. So your standard diversity, equity, and inclusion person would say, this is exactly what you want. Okay, well, yeah, if I want that guy to be on the street conducting surveillance, following a target, you're 100% right, because he can blend in and disappear in a way that I will never be able to achieve, even though I spoke the language. I'm just not going to pass as a local. Forget about it. Okay. But in that situation, what did the source want? Ideally, blonde hair pale skin and blue eyes, whatever their stereotype of an American was. Somebody who screams, I'm an American from 50 feet away. That's what they want. So that's not always the case. There's a, it just, the point is, it's not about the, these kind of silly, arbitrary decisions. It's about what works. You recruit a female case officer. Okay, great. I'm all for that. I'm married to a retired female case officer who kicked butt all over the world. She'll be the first one to tell you if she walks out onto the street in a Middle Eastern country or on the street in India or Pakistan as a white lady with blonde hair, there's no way in hell she's blending in, disappearing, man. She's going to attract a crowd wherever she goes. It's better than TV. Why? Because there's nobody that looks like this here because this is right. You're screaming, screaming attention. So it's just, it should be about what's necessary to conduct the operation. It should be about who's going to be there. I could not be, I'm less entertaining than her on the streets of Pakistan, but obviously I'm not blending in either. They're not looking at me no matter how good my Urdu is and saying, well, I think you're from Lahore. I don't think that's happening. I'm not, can't do anything about that. Well, you, you, uh, you said two words in there amongst all the other great stuff you talked about, but two words really put it in a laser beam. What works? Yes. And when we're talking about medicine or law enforcement or your plumber 
or whatever it is, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. One should only be, when I say one, organization, by the way, responsible to the American people as, as much that CIA is a series of black operations, in other words, operations that are top secret, they're still ultimately responsible to the American people. They were formed for a reason, and that was to protect yeah. us. And so the only two words that should be asked in any roundtable is what works. And if it were only a certain segment of the population that made it work, that made my family and me, your family and you safer, I don't care what they look like. I don't care. I don't care anything about it as Absolutely. long as what works. Now, of course, again, this is a, a broader talk topic about we're not talking about excluding people we're talking about yeah. including the people that fulfill the role so with that said and again this is really all from your article and and it's so it was a great summary but it's dense in the fact that it touches on so many important things regarding the cia and not just the cia but other organizations or other agencies what doesn't work i think sam and i sure you would agree and our, our listeners would agree mm -hmm. of a great audience is when you interject politics into an organization that is supposed to be objective and blind to those things like any other organization and in this case we're, we're talking specifically about law enforcement now cia is a different animal right it's not law enforcement it's intelligence but the same thing is intelligence just in the abstract is objective intelligence doesn't care about anything else it, it is right. or it isn't right. so how has and maybe you can give some examples in there and i'll just throw them out there we talked about benghazi in your article talked about the the 51 flyers in, in my opinion that, that yeah. signed the the letter saying the hunter biden laptop was russian disinformation how severely has politics injured the cia yeah well so this is the second part right after we talk bureaucratization politicization it is a massive issue you're talking about 51 liars that's probably the politest term i could use i try but, not to use profanity on here sometimes I, I do it slips out but i'm dancing around the same margin myself right now look you got 51 folks who sign up to a letter. Yeah, it's got all kinds of waffle wording and fine print at the end. But the bottom line is they know, because actually the Washington Post article was actually already written when they signed. It. The Post didn't just discover this and then write an article about it. The Post was part and parcel of this. And that what it boils down to is that we're going to tell the American people going into the election, pay no attention to Hunter's laptop. It's Russian disinformation. It's a fraud. It's a lie. Yeah. Okay. I looked at, first of all, they have no business at all. The CIA should not be within 10 miles of American domestic politics. But they also know, or should have known, that was a lie. I looked at the laptop hard drive very early on. Steve Bannon and Jack Maxey, who was then working with Bannon, asked me to come to D.C. right after they got a copy of the hard drive. And by the way, for the record, they asked me to come because their point was, we, will, we do not want to be used and we do not want to push disinformation. So we want you to give us a readout. And they had 
at least one other guy with more of a technical background involved as well. We want to know if this thing is fraudulent, we're not talking about it. We're not pushing it. We're not going to be pawns for somebody. So within about five minutes of looking at the hard drive, you're like, nobody on earth could dummy this thing. If you told me when I was running ops to do this to somebody else, I would say, can't be done. Can I create a hard drive? Yes. Can I throw some junk on it? Yes. Will a competent tech guy tell you that it's a fraud in about five minutes? Yes. Just think about all the permutations. You got emails and you got images and every image was taken at a real location on a real date with real people and has metadata associated. In other words, it shows the GPS cords and the time and date. And every email has similar stuff, where it came from, who it was originated by. And by the way, all those emails don't exist just on that laptop. They have to exist on the laptop of the person it was sent to or from servers in between. We could go on like this forever. It's just the point is that too many variables, too much stuff. You want to tell me somebody put an email on here that's fraudulent? Even that's not nearly as simple as people might think to for it to stand up to scrutiny because there's a lot of things associated even with one email. But the point is, that's not what you're saying. You're saying the whole thing's a fake. There's no way. There's Hunter Biden, God forbid, with no trousers on as usual in a hotel room in Hong Kong with three drunk Russians, two hookers, a stack of Coke. And it's a real room in a real hotel and all those people are real. And where they were on that date at that time is a known. So how would I fake that? Everyone, I would then, how do I know that? How can I make sure that jives with the known locations of those three Russian businessmen and those prostitutes and the internal layout of that hotel room? We could go on down that road. That's an image. So anyway, the point is, it was absurd on the face of it. And yet you got 51 supposed spies. Most of them wouldn't know an op if it bit them in the butt. But the bottom line is all telling the American people this is a lie. And why'd they do it? They did it because they don't want Donald Trump to win an election. You're like, okay, that's, as you said, your job in the intel business is to discern the truth to the best of your ability and hand those facts to the policymakers who work for the American people. And that's it. You don't make policy. You certainly don't get involved in domestic politics. I said before I was, we went into Iraq late spring of 2002 in advance of the invasion. So almost a year in advance. When we first went in, there were eight of us. And there were the northern part of Iraq at that point, as it is still today, but even when Saddam was in power, was basically under the control of the Kurds. You got two different Kurdish parties, almost like these little Kurdish kingdoms. All right, down along the Iranian border in Kurdish-controlled territory, there were a whole bunch of Islamists, basically Al-Qaeda allies and Al-Qaeda guys that had washed up there and carved out their own little crazy kingdom in this area that Saddam did not control, and they were working on biological weapons and chemical weapons. And so while we were up there getting ready for the invasion, we were focused also on these guys and what are they up to and how dangerous is this? And as I said, a number of these folks were Al-Qaeda guys who had escaped from Afghanistan by that point, because this is after we invaded Afghanistan. 
So it becomes clear to me as the team leader, there's a grand total, as I said, of eight of us in there, that Washington would really like it if we could say that these guys, Al-Qaeda, were connected to Saddam Hussein. In other words, we could produce intel reports that said Saddam and Osama are in business together because that would simplify the task of justifying to the American people why we're getting ready to invade Iraq show that UBL and Saddam are in bed together. Now, nobody gave me an order to find, that's not what I'm saying, but it became clear from our conversations with headquarters that there was a lot of policymaker interest back home. And if we could produce something tying these crazy Islamists to Saddam Hussein, this would be the gift that the Bush administration would love to have. So I called together the team and for the record, I said this because I wanted them to hear me say it out loud, not because I had any doubts about these guys because they were all pros. I just wanted them to know where I was. And I laid all this out on the table. Hey, Washington would love for us to find a connection between Saddam and Osama bin Laden. If we find that connection, I'd be more than happy to press the button and transmit that message back to Washington, D.C. If we don't find that connection, we're not saying that. If we don't feel comfortable, in other words, bottom line, nothing has changed. Do your frigging jobs, buy the numbers, collect the information, report it to Washington, their problem. We just give them the facts. They decide what to do. And again, I didn't say that because I had any doubts about them. I wanted them to hear me as the team leader say it out loud. Nothing has changed. So that's got to be, because that's the way I was brought up in the organization. And that's got to be the way it is, man. You don't shade the truth. You don't feed Washington what it wants to hear. You also don't cover up things they don't want to hear, which is another part of the game where they, you keep telling them about a threat and it's inconvenient because politically they don't want to confront it. That's too bad for you. <laughs> paid the big bucks to sit in the White House. I'm just telling you, these guys are getting ready to kill us. If you decide not to do anything about it, that's your call. I'm not going to stop telling. Yeah, this would be like a doctor not wanting to give you bad news. Yes. It, yes. It's just going to hurt you faster and probably worse. And would you say that, and listen, to be totally fair and objective, like I'm sure I know you are and I am, that this pressure, or at least this that you're talking about now from the Bush administration, this is coming from a Republican administration. So we're not saying that the politics are exclusive to one party or another. No. However, having said that, it seems like that trend, in my opinion, Sam has really shifted <laughs> to one side of the aisle over I, the I years. Would agree with, I would agree with that 100%. That the issue of politicization is much worse now than it has ever been. It has become a massive shift. You made reference to Benghazi. Okay, well, look, the CIA base in Benghazi and the adjoining, and not the adjoining, but the nearby State Department compound were attacked by hundreds and hundreds of guys with mortars and rocket-propelled grenades and AKs in an assault by a known terrorist group. Those guys had already attacked multiple diplomatic targets. They were known. They didn't come out of the ether. We knew exactly who they were, and it was a war from Jump Street. There was no demonstration. There was nothing like that. And I've, I know many of the people, including the State Department guys, who were on the ground there. That's all Washington was told. Nobody said anything about a demonstration. From the first moment, from the first shot, everybody, DOD, CIA, state said, 
we're at war, man. And by the way, where's somebody coming to help us? Didn't stop the Obama administration from turning around and telling a bald-faced lie. And then the CIA director, acting director at the time, Morell, backstopped him. And, and when it ultimately fell apart, he stood up and said, well, my bad. The CIA made that call. The CIA, that was a lie. Nobody, CIA never made that call. He covered for them to take the political heat. The bottom line is, all of that is wrong. The CIA director, if, if he said anything, should be the guy who sits up on Capitol Hill and says, I have no idea why Susan Rice told you there was a demonstration in Benghazi because nobody ever told her that. Our intel never said that. And here is our assessment and the assessment that was sent in. And if they want to fire you, then awesome. They can fire you. Take, Sam, you know, I, I've got to interrupt. I've, I have said this over and over throughout the, the latter part of my career, and certainly since I retired, because when you're talking about people at that level, a director, an acting director, almost always these people are extremely tenured, talking 20, 25, 30 years. They're nearing the end of their careers anyway, or, or they certainly can. And yes. I said, my God, if these people had a modicum of courage, they would just stand up and say the truth. And by say, listen, I'm going to tell you what's happening. And by the way, because I know that I am not in line with my superiors tomorrow, I'm going to submit my resignation and God Are bless you. you and blah, blah, blah. And just from a monetary point of view, they'd probably be a millionaire in a year because everybody would want to seek this person out for objectivity, for leadership, for courage, for in other words, my God, it's, I understand it. It can be a little bit frightening, but if you just put your mind to it a little bit, it's like, what have I got to lose by telling the truth here? I said it over and over, and I'm so glad you made that point. It's why don't people stand up? Now, in this gentleman's case, the acting director you're talking, referring to, I know that he was, like you said in your article, by the way, and I read that, I go, well, he's probably, and then as I'm thinking, you said it clearly in your article, that he was assuming that Hillary was going to become president. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. And he wanted a place in the cabinet or someplace in that administration. Yep. So that That's was right. his strategy instead of saying, saying the right thing. But yeah, well, it's, I, I agree with everything you said. And also, look, the bottom line is you're supposed to be in the job for a reason, right? You didn't spend 30 years in law enforcement because of the high pay and all of the other perks that go with the job, right? CIA guys get paid on a standard GS scale. If they give you a medal in CIA, and I've had this experience, you walk across the stage, they give it to you. You walk, continue across the stage, they take it back and they lock it in a safe because you're undercover and can't even keep your medal. So you ain't doing it for ticker tape parades or for lots of cash. You're there for the, because it's a really important job and you're serving the American people. Now you got right. these, you got a bunch of guys dead and a bunch of other guys who almost died and people lying about what happened on the ground. Yeah. I don't care what the consequences are. Stand up, man. Have some backbone. Tell the truth. Greg Hicks, in my mind, a hero. Most Americans don't know his name. He was the number two in the State Department, real State Department guy in Libya. So when the ambassador gets killed, he becomes what they call the charge. He's in charge, although not formally appointed as ambassador. Greg went up on Capitol Hill after the whole Benghazi thing and told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about everything that happened. 
So the Department of State sent him to, for a couple of years to a think tank to have a now the body experience and then pushed him into retirement because he never, and he was never sent out again. Mm-hmm. Now, again, he's a good friend. I guarantee if you spoke to him today and you asked him, if you had it all to do over again, what would you do? He'd say, I'd do exactly the same thing. Because every morning when I get up and look in the mirror, I can look at myself with a clear conscience. There are guys that died out there, and I told the truth about how this all happened. I wouldn't, I, if I had lied, probably would have been made ambassador in Cairo, and I'd probably still be on the serve, and I wouldn't trade. Well, God bless him. Like you said, he sleeps soundly at night now. And what more can you ask for? We need more leaders like that. It's it's a shame that there's such a dearth. But sometimes it only takes one or two or a handful of people to break that dam open and show some leadership and courage and others will follow. By the way, you can't have leaders if you don't have followers. Most people are followers, which is fine. And they're willing to do things with someone takes the helm. So I'm... Well, we use the word hopeful, but I'm certainly open to the possibility that we'll start seeing more people like like yeah. him. Listen, we're seeing it now with the IRS whistleblowers. We're seeing people that are stepping up one after another, and it may not be easy initially, but they are doing it. And again, now you're having more people follow suit and keep that up. With the politics involved and, and the other aspects we talk about, bureaucracy, we had go back along, go back 50 years, we had similar, they were, I think maybe for different reasons, but the results were the same. We had problems with the CIA, not only CIA, but IRS, FBI, and we're seeing it all over again. History does repeat itself. And we had something called the church committee about 50 years ago. Don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but, and that was actually authored by a Democrat Senator church. And it looked into really the malfeasance and blind funding, and the mismanagement, misuse of these different federal agencies. What solutions do you see as the church committee style type of uh, solution, one of them, to getting the CIA, and we could talk about other federal agencies, it's not just CIA, but this is your field of expertise. What solutions do you see, Sam, to get the CIA back to what it once was, what it should be, and what it can be again to make Americans safe? Well, first up front, I would say, I think the concept of the church committee to look into the CIA was fine. I think, unfortunately, along the way, a lot of politics crept into that. And so you get a lot of sensationalism and a lot of grabbing a hold of things. So I, I guess that just for the record, I don't fully endorse where the church committee ended up in their inquiry. But the idea that CIA has to be accountable, is uh, that's bedrock as far as I'm concerned. Right? It works for the American people, and that means it works for the elected representatives of the American people. It's not some private club that gets to do what it wants. What do I think? I think that, look, I, I think that first, I don't think the CIA, I think the CIA can be repaired. I think it can be fixed. Do I think it's easy? No. You got to send somebody to the agency who knows the agency because. Otherwise, they're going to lead you around by the nose and play you uh, because it's a very arcane little world and normal people don't know anything about it. And you're not going to have a prayer. They, they have done a very effective job over the years with folks who came in from the outside intending to make change. 
and then achieving nothing. So you got to have somebody who knows the place. The biggest factor is you got to have a president who sends them there who says, do whatever is required to get these guys back on track. When the OSS, which is the predecessor to CIA, was built during the Second World War, General Donovan, who was a Medal of Honor winner from the First World War, was installed. This is 1942. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt put him in there and said, build this thing. And what Donovan had was he basically had the president's phone number, if you will. So when he's running around Washington, D.C., and he's making the, he's breaking a lot of China and he's building this outfit that a lot of people didn't want built, what everybody knows is this guy can call FDR. He effectively has the president in his back pocket, and I don't mean to suggest he controlled FDR. He has carte blanche from FDR to do this. Don't, if you get in his way, the president's going to step on you. And therefore, he could move and make the necessary change because that's what it's going to take because you're going to arrive at CIA and you're probably going to have to fire. I have no idea how many senior officers day one. You're probably in, in, I don't think you should go in there and just decapitate people for the sake of decapitating them. Again, I'm speaking metaphorically. But the bottom line is you're going to have to throw a lot of people out. Anybody who's been sitting there watching the CIA interfere in domestic American politics doesn't need to have a job at the CIA anymore. We can't get past that, right? If you watched people try to prevent Donald Trump from getting elected and, and push this fake Russiagate garbage, and you didn't speak up and stand up and say something, well, then you're done. Bye. Enjoy your retirement. So, and then you're going to just have to continue in that vein. Again, it's not a question of settling grudges or anything else. It's just, we got to get back to basics, guys. We got to get serious. We got to go back to running operations. We got to go, our job is not to produce assessments that say, with moderate confidence, North Korea remains north of South Korea. Our job is to say, Vladimir Putin's got 200,000 guys on the border of Ukraine here is the war plan and the order that's going to be given at 06 tomorrow morning, starting the Russian-Ukraine war that nobody else on the planet has, and we do. This is the location of the head of ISIS. This is the location of the stolen Pakistani nuclear weapon, whatever it is. That's it's supposed to be the varsity team, right? This is supposed to be the guys who do that. It's going to require breaking a lot of eggs, whatever metaphor you want to use. So you got to have somebody who knows the place and also somebody who's got, who was sent over there to break China, who to do whatever is required because they will, people will squeal. Oh my God. Everybody and his brother is going to tell Congress that something horrible is now going to happen and we're destroying the capabilities of the organization. I have said this anytime I'm given an interview like this, having said all of that, I think if you went in there and you did that, what you would find is that the rank and file would be cheering in the hallways, mm. right? They came there to do a job. They know better than anybody else how messed up it is. If you came in there and said, enough of this garbage, we're getting back to basics, we're doing the job, we're running the ops, we should run, they'd be like, thank God, man. I, mm -hmm. that, that's, the, that's the reaction I think you would get from the rank and file. And honestly... I think you could make similar, we could talk about the FBI. Right. The problems are not identical. 
But I honestly think if you went in there and made the changes you need to make, the average FBI special agent would be saying, oh, God bless you. Mm-hmm. Can we get back? Can we back get back to doing our work? Well, Sam, God willing, we'll have a person in the White House come 2024 who do just the things that you so clearly articulated. It needs to be done. It needs to be revamped. Like you said, most of the people there are to do the right thing, to do the job necessary to protect us and to uphold the rule of law, which is really the pinnacle of this show. It's what it comes down to is the rule of law, which by definition means doing things objectively and, and constitutionally and without favor and without politics involved. If we can do that, I think we'd not only be a safer society, but we'd be a happier society. Yeah. Sam Fettis, uh it's been great. This hour, Sam has gone by fast. Again, I want you to give the handle, folks. My guest has been Sam Fattis. Sam, give the handle for Substack again, please. Andmagazine.substack.com. So andmagazine.substack.com. My stuff, it's me, my wife, and a number of other folks from similar backgrounds. Let's put it that way. We do a lot of domestic politics, but probably the biggest stuff is national security and intelligence, things like that. Fantastic. Sam, thank you again. And I'm sure we'll be talking in the future. I really appreciate you coming on. And I'm grateful my audience has had a chance to listen and or watch you. So God bless you. We'll be in touch, my friend. Thank you.